0: Today, we are continuing our study in the book of Esther, and uh, we are in chapter 2 today. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. The title of the message today is Standing Alone, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you are on the throne That you, Jesus, as we are seeking just to navigate following you in this crazy world, um, Lord, it's so refreshing to remember that you are on the throne, that you are in control. And I pray today as we look at your word that you would minister to our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would have your way in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes when I see needs in our community, and sometimes even needs in in our church, I find myself just wrestling with this thought that when there's a big problem, that I'm just one person. And I find myself thinking, what can I do? What kind of impact can I make? I mean, I'm just one guy. And maybe you've wrestled in that same type of way with needs that you've seen in the community or in the church or needs that get kind of put before you of just thinking that, you know, hey, I'm only one person. What kind of impact can I make? But that's when we need to remind ourselves that the Bible is full of stories of one person responding to the call of God and God using that one person to make a major impact and sometimes even change the course of human history. And the book of Esther is one of those kind of stories. I love what Edward Everett Hale has said on this. He says, I'm only one, but I'm still one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do, what I can do and I should do, and with the help of God, I will do. I love that. It's a great outlook. And, you know, we should never, ever underestimate the power of one person. I mean, consider this, the power of one vote. In in 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. In 1776, one vote gave America the English language instead of German. And I don't know if you've ever been to Germany, but I'm glad that that we speak English here, all right? No offense to you German speakers, but uh, I just think that's a tougher language. In 1839, one vote elected Marcus Morton, the governor of Massachusetts. In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union. And ever since, they've been trying to figure out how to get out of the Union, right? If you're from Texas, (laughs) In 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from impeachment. In 1876, one vote gave Rutherford B. Hayes the United States presidency. And here's the most sobering one. In 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. And as we come to chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Esther, we're going to see one man filled with great hate, Another man who makes a bold stand and a woman who is going to take a great risk. And through the course of those events, we'll see how human history was changed. As we go through these two chapters, I want to make um, six or seven observations of the kind of person that God uses. We're going to look at three today, and we'll look at the rest next week. But we're picking up in verse 21 of chapter two. Esther is now the queen, and we'll see that about five years have transpired from the events that we looked at last week. But let's pick it up in verse 21. It says, in those days, while Mordecai, Sat within the king's gate. Remember, Mordecai is this godly man who has raised his orphaned cousin. Uh, Hadassah. We know her as Esther. Um, And she now has been chosen to be the next queen in Persia. And Mordecai is working for the king. He's in the gates. And that's where the leaders hung out. And they would take care of civil and judicial matters. In fact, when you think of the gates, think of the courthouse. That's kind of what it was like. That's where they would bring those type of matters. And one day, Mordecai overhears of an assassination plot against the king. We pick it up. It says two of the king's eunuchs, Thon and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai who told Queen Esther and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both, that's Bigthon and Teresh, were hanged on the gallows, and it was written into the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai is doing his job and he hears of these two guys that want to take out the king. And so he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, they they, uh, put forth an investigation. They find out that this is true and they hang these two guys and it becomes written into the Persian history. It becomes written into the official books of the Persian Chronicles. And this little bit of information is going to serve as an important piece of information In fact, we'll see this in our study next week, where Mordecai helped thwart this assassination plot. But it's interesting, no rewards given to Mordecai for what he did. Let's keep that in mind. As we come to chapter 3, we are introduced to the villain in this story. Notice chapter 3. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted. Now we would think it would say, Mordecai, right? I mean, he just, you know, saved your life. You would think that that he was the one that gets promoted, but that's not what happens. And this is a good reminder to us that life isn't fair. You realize that? Life is not fair, but God is still sovereign. Life is not fair, but God is still on the throne. And we all need to remember that. And that's going to play a part in this story. So after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagites, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So this man, Haman, is given this role in Persian now as being sort of a prime minister. He's got his power. He has his little throne. And we're going to see that this guy is an egotistical maniac. Look at verse 2. "'And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate "'bowed and paid homage to Haman, "'for so the king had commanded concerning him. "'But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage.' Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened that when they spoke to him daily, so this is going on for a while, that he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And I want you to note this because here we see this is the reason why Mordecai is not bowing. It has to do with the fact that he's a Jew. that He's a follower of Jehovah. He's a Jew and he's not ashamed of it. And so Mordecai is not being defiant because Haman got uh, promoted instead of him, or he's not getting, you know, being defiant because he just doesn't like this guy. No, this has to do with his faith. And Mordecai is making a stand here because he is a devout and godly man and bowing down to any earthly person or anything in in the Jewish mind would be considered idolatry. And so he wasn't going to do that because it ran against the deepest convictions of his faith. And so here we see one man, Mordecai, who's going against the grain. And even though this is the king's command, he's not just defying Haman, he's defying the order of the king, he stands his ground. And this is the first principle we want to make note of, of the kind of person that God uses, is that he, is he, he or she is one who stands for truth. They stand on the word of God. And the result of that is they're not afraid to go against the grain. And this is the common thread of the person that God uses, is that they have been those who are willing to take a stand and do what is right regardless of the cost. You know, it's an easy thing to follow the crowd. It's an easy thing to do what everyone else is doing, but it takes a man or woman of faith and conviction to stand on what they believe no matter what the cost. I like what Max Lucado says on this point. He says, living as a person of faith in a faithless world requires courage and acts of resistance. Oh, how we need that word today, don't we? That living as a person of faith in a faithless world. Hopefully we are all persons of faith and we are living in a faithless world. And in order to do that, it requires courage and acts of resistance. So here's the question. How do you become that type of person? I think here's the lesson. You decide now what you will do then. You decide now what you will do then. You see, you can't wait until the heat of the moment to make your decision. You have to decide what you are going to do ahead of time. That's why whenever you get on an airplane, the flight attendant always gets up with every single flight. We've all heard it just hundreds of times. And what do they do? They tell you where the exits are. Because none of us think clearly in the midst of a free fall, right? That's why they do that. So they tell you where the exits are. And when I fly, I always kind of scope out. Once they you know, point out where the exits are, actually, I, I look for them before I get on the plane. But I'm always thinking, okay, if this plane goes down, who am I going to have to help? Who's going to maybe be a problem? You know, who, who am I going to have to? I mean, that's what I'm thinking about. When I get on an airplane, I'm planning a little bit of a strategy just in case because I want to be prepared in the midst of the free fall. So that's what you do. You have to decide now what you're going to do then. And the same principle applies in following Jesus. You have to decide now what you will do then. That the time to determine to resist temptation is before it strikes. We see a great example of this in the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of a group of young Hebrew men that were taken captive when the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, entered into Israel and they ransacked Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar took the brightest young men and carted them back over a thousand miles back to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And this was always Nebuchadnezzar's strategy is he would take the brightest and the best looking of the young people in the the cities or the nations that he conquered and he'd bring them back to Babylon to indoctrinate them in the culture and the ways of Babylon so that they could then be used to help oversee their people whom the Babylonians had captured. Well, Daniel was one of these young men. But it says in the book of Daniel in chapter 1 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile his morals or his faith, that he was not going to compromise his faith or his morals. He purposed in his heart. Now, it might have been really easy for Daniel to, to argue, well, you know, everybody else is doing it. It could have been easy for him to say, you know what? I'm so far away from home. I mean, who's going to see? And when in Rome, you know, do as the Romans do. But Daniel didn't do that. He purposed in his heart, I am not going to compromise my morals. I'm not going to compromise my faith. And so when he was thrust into the opportunity to then compromise his morals and compromise his faith, he stood his ground. And get this, when we stand up for God, God stands up for us. And that's what we see happen in the story of Daniel. Daniel ends up getting promoted. He he ends up gaining favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and all of his leaders. And the second thing that happens when you make a stand is oftentimes it becomes contagious. And we see that happen as well because three of Daniel's friends, because of the stand that he made, because he purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to defile himself, they said, we're not going to do it either. And his friends were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who a little bit later in the story, they're put in this place where Nebuchadnezzar says to all of the people in this one part of, uh, of Babylon, hey, when you hear, he builds this huge giant statue of himself. And he says, when you hear the music sound, I want you to bow down to the statue. Well, picture a couple hundred people out in a pavilion courtyard area. Big, huge, golden statue. The music starts to sound. And everybody whoosh, bows down. But you have these three young Hebrew men standing. Picture that. Like, we're not, we're not bowing. Well, Nebuchadnezzar liked these guys. So he decides, hey, I'm going to give you a second chance. I really like you guys. You know, I'm going to give you a chance. When the music sounds, you need to bow. And they said, look, we're not bowing. It's not going to happen. And they told him, look, one way or another, king, our Lord is going to deliver us from your hand. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he gets incensed by this. He yells to his men, turn up the the furnace seven times hotter. It was so hot that the when they went to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, that the men who were throwing them into the furnace, they were instantly killed. That's how hot it was. But then when King Nebuchadnezzar goes to his little viewing room to watch these three Hebrew guys become crispy critters, he sees they're not burning up. They're, they're walking around. They're like in a sauna, you know, just enjoying themselves, you know, in there. And he looks and he goes, hey, didn't we throw three guys into the fiery furnace? Why is it that I see four? And the fourth is like the Son of God. What happened? Jesus was standing with them in the midst of the fiery furnace. That's what happens. When we stand for God, he stands with us, and it also has a contagious effect on others. But this is the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, they purposed in their heart that they weren't going to defile. They weren't going to compromise their morals or their faith. They decided now what they were going to do then. And that's what we need to do. That's why I tell graduating seniors, hey, you need to decide right now what you're going to do then. So when you get to your college and you have that professor who is challenging your faith, you decide now that if he says something that you don't understand, that you're going to go and find out the answer because you know that the, what the Bible says is true. You need to decide now when you head off to that college that you're not going to get sucked into when you get invited to that party and that get-together where things are going on that shouldn't be going on, that you're going to stand your ground. You have to decide now what you're going to do then. I tell dating couples, you got to decide now what you're going to do then. The time to resist temptation is not when you are to decide to resist temptation is not when you are in the moment. You have to decide now. you got to talk about it. You have to decide now what you're going to do then. You have to realize now what Jesus said is true, that although the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. You have to decide now that you're not going to go down that road, that you're not going to put yourself in places where you can be alone and you can be tempted. I tell business owners, you got to decide now what you are going to do then. You have to decide now that you, how you're going to run your business, that you're going to be a person of integrity that you're going to be a person who has the best work quality, that you're going to be honest, that you're not going to cut corners for profit, that you're not going to do something that you know that God thinks is not right and doesn't honor God just because the rest of the industry does it. You be different. And watch how God honors that. And we could go on and on and on with example, but this is the point that I'm making. You want to be a person that God uses. You want to be a person that stands up and stands out. You want to be a person that resists temptation. It starts with deciding now what you're going to do then. So Mordecai, he's true to his faith and his principles, and he doesn't bow. Notice what happens, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. What that phrase means is that he decided that it wasn't enough to simply punish Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And we read that and think, wow, that's crazy. And I think we would be prone to think that this is an overreaction. This guy has some major problems. But there's two things going on here that we need to understand. First of all, this reaction is the result of centuries of hatred between the Israelites and the Amalekites. The Agagites were descendants of King Agag, and and, and Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were these brutal barbarians. Think kind of of Isis of our day. They were known for their surprise attacks, And they were brutal. They had a brutal history with the people of Israel. And when the children of Israel first started in Exodus chapter 17, you can look it up later. But when the children of Israel were first delivered from Egypt, and now they're heading into the wilderness, they're going to the land of promise. One of the first enemies that they come up against is the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. And there's a battle that ensues there. And the Lord gives the people of Israel victory in this battle. But they suffered a blow. And the the Amalekites did something in this battle that the Lord never, ever forgot. And this is what they did. This was kind of their, their custom. This was their, their trademark. They, as the battle was going on, they had part of their troops circle around to the back, and they attacked the camp of the Israelites where the women and children were, and they slaughtered some of the women and the children and that was their mode that they would seek to to attack the the innocent and the unarmed in order to emotionally cripple the army that they were fighting against well god never ever forgot that and he said to moses in deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 19 when you settle into the land once you get settled once the people get settled in the land of promise go and and absolutely obliterate the Amalekites, destroy them completely, just wipe them off the face of the earth. And God wasn't being vengeful in saying this. It was more that he viewed the Amalekites like a cancer. And for 400 years, he had given these people a chance to turn from their ways. But instead, they just got worse and turned more against him and became more and more evil. And so God said, look, like a cancer, they need to go. But the problem was the Israelites didn't follow through. So fast forward 300 years from the book of Exodus to the time of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And 1 Samuel chapter 15 is about 600 years before the time of the book of Esther. Now Saul's the king, and he's going into battle against the Amalekites. And through the prophet Samuel, Samuel comes and says, hey, this is God's message to you. You need to wipe out the Amalekites completely. You need to remember what they did to our people. God still remembers this, and he wants you to wipe them out completely. In fact, don't even bring any livestock back with you. Well, Saul goes into battle. He's victorious, but he doesn't follow through. He doesn't wipe out the Amalekites. And on top of that, he ends up bringing back some of their animals back to the camp. And Samuel comes out to meet him. He's like, what, what, what are all these animals? What are you doing? And Saul does what we so often do, is he seeks to spiritualize his disobedience. Oh, I brought him back so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. And then Samuel says, and who's this? Because the other thing that Saul did is he brought back King Agag as sort of a trophy. And Saul's like, "Well, I brought him back. I thought, you know, it'd be, you know, really great for our morale to see that we captured him, you know, that sort of thing." And this is where it gets really, really intense. And when I read this part of my Bible, I always picture in my mind Gandalf from Lord of the Rings because it says that Samuel went and borrowed Saul's sword and he came and he hacked Agag in to pieces. How glorious is that, right? He just takes this guy and hacks him in to pieces. And I said, I say, who needs movies? Just read your Bible, right? But in doing so, what Samuel was doing, he also was giving us an illustration of how we're to deal with our flesh. Because the Bible says that we're to make no provision for the flesh. And Agag is a picture of the flesh. He's a picture of sin. Don't make any provision for it. You need to deal with sin. You need to deal with your flesh the way that Samuel dealt with Agag. Deal with it swiftly and decidingly. And that's what he does there because this is one of the things that we need to understand is that if you let your flesh flesh live. If you let sin live in your heart and in your life, it will grow. And it will seek to take over. It will seek to rule. And here we are 600 years later from that point in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Saul didn't destroy the Amalekites that here we see Haman who's a descendant of King Agag and he wants to completely wipe out the Jews in the kingdom of Persia just because he's offended by this one Jewish man who just happens to be a descendant of King Saul. We looked at that last week. And I think it's very, very probable that Haman has been nursing a hatred and a bitterness in his life toward the Jewish people that comes to a head in this particular moment. But there's something else you need to see here. There's something even more sinister that's going on here because what's, what we're reading here, this plan, this plot to completely annihilate all the Jewish people and that's about 3 million people strong in the 127 provinces that this is actually demonic. Haman is about to become the first Hitler and this is a page right out of the devil's playbook. You see, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And after the fall, God comes and gives this message to Satan. He said, one day, there's going to come a Savior who's going to be born of the seed of the woman. In other words, he's talking there about a virgin birth. Women don't have seed. He's going to be born of the seed of the woman, a virgin birth, who's going to grow up to be the Savior, the Messiah of the people of Israel. And this is what he's going to do to you, Satan. He's going to crush your head. And from that point forward, Satan knew that his fate was sealed. And when Satan discovered that this coming savior was going to come from the descendants of Abraham, in other words, the Jewish people, he put a plan in motion to destroy the Jewish nation because if there's no Jewish people, then there's no savior and there's no Messiah. It was a script of mass genocide. And the first attempt was made when he put into the heart of Pharaoh, remember this in the book of Exodus, to drown all the baby boys there in the book of Exodus. And then we see it again here in the book of Esther. Haman has this plan. He's going to eradicate three million Jews from Israel or from Persia. Later, a madman by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes killed one million Jewish people. And then we see Herod in the New Testament, the enemy that Satan puts it in his heart to kill all of the babies born in Bethlehem, two years and under. What's he trying to do? He's trying to kill the line leading to the Messiah. In that particular instance, he was trying, he had heard that the Messiah had been born. And so he's trying to kill the Messiah. And then later on, Hitler comes on the scene and he has six million Jews killed during the Holocaust. And you know, this is something that we need to understand is that Jewish people, more than any other people on the face of the earth throughout history have been hated and sought to be destroyed by different nations and countries and people on planet earth. In fact, it was just a short while ago that the leaders in Iran, modern day Persia said, we think that Israel, we want to blow Israel off the face of the map. We want to completely obliterate these people. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today and you buy a map in some Middle Eastern countries, do you know, I'm not making this up, that Israel is not even listed on those maps? Look it up. Not right now, but you can look that up on your own. Not even listed. That's how they view, that they are a people that don't even deserve to exist. And later on, during the time of the tribulation, one called the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, and he is going to seek to wreak havoc on the Jewish people as well. Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a second, Pastor Rob. If, if, if Jesus, the Messiah, has already showed up, why is the devil still trying to get rid of the Jewish people? And this is the reason why. He knows that Jesus is coming back one day and he knows that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are special to God and so he doesn't want there to be any Jewish people for Jesus to come back to. But my point in all of this is that this is demonically inspired. What's happening here in the book of Esther, this plan of Haman, it is a demonically inspired plan. It's a spiritual battle that's going on. Let's get back to the story. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, month which is the month of Adar. So 11 months, they, they decided to cast lots. Okay, when's this eradication plan going to happen? They cast lots, and it comes up that it would be 11 months from now. Think about that. 11 months. The people of Israel are going to have this hanging over their heads. Now I want you just to notice, there's a little bit of time frame here, is that what year did the king have his feast that we looked at in, in, back in chapter 1? Well, that in chapter 2, that was um, in the third year of his reign. And then what year was Esther made the queen? We saw this last week. It was in the seventh year. Of his reign. And now we're reading that we're now in the 12th year. So five years have passed. And I find this very, very interesting because God has his chief characters in this story Esther and Mordecai. He has them in place. Esther is the queen, Mordecai is working for the king. They are in this place, but the reason for them being placed in these positions has not been revealed yet. And this is the second principle, second observation we want to note today of the kind of person that God uses is that he or she is a person who knows how to be patient and bloom where they are planted. You see, our problem so often is, is we live on a day-to-day basis and we look at today or we look at tomorrow or we look at last week and we think, man, nothing has happened in my life. Nothing's happening. You know, I've been here a whole two weeks and, and nothing's taken place. I've been, uh, been here, you know, two months and, and God doesn't seem like he's doing anything. But listen, God's purposes are not always accomplished in two weeks or two months. Sometimes it's years. But he'll put us into a place or a position in order to be used at a later date. There's been so many times in my life where I find myself in a place where I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what God is doing. I find myself just scratching my head. And it's not until a couple of years later that suddenly it's all made clear. And I can look back and go, oh, now I understand. Now I see, Lord, what you were doing in that moment. And I've learned that what I call these in-between seasons is to not get discouraged, but to be faithful in where God has you to not focus on what God isn't doing, but to focus on what he is doing and be faithful in the moment and, and focus on the moment where he has you right now. Be faithful in that and trust him for the future. In this story, it's five years later. Five years since Esther was made the queen that we looked at last week. And we are beginning now to see why God has put them into this position. And maybe some of you right now find yourself in a place where, like, I have no idea why I'm here. I have no idea what God's doing right now. But you need to understand that, that God just is wanting you to be faithful with where He has you. Bloom where you're planted and leave the future. Leave what you're maybe thinking like, okay, I thought God was bringing me here for this. And he might be doing that. But right now, he's got you in position and he's working. He wants you just to trust him. Let's continue our story. Now, Haman is the kind of man who knows how to push the right buttons of the king. We pick it up in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from all the other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. Some scholars estimate that this is $20 million by today's standards. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work and bring it into the king's treasuries. So here's what he does. He's pushing the right buttons. He brings up the issue of the king's influence. And he says, you know, there's this this group of people, these Jewish people, and they're not obeying your laws. That wasn't true. There was one Jewish man that we know of who wasn't obeying the laws, that he wasn't bowing to Haman. But he's exaggerating. And I've learned that people who have an agenda, this is what they often do. They exaggerate. I have people that come to me sometimes and they say, hey, hey, there's a lot of people in the church who are upset about this. Or there's a lot of people who are concerned about that. And I've learned to ask, well, what's a lot? Who, who have you been talking to? How many? What are their names? And I usually find that it's like two or three. You know? <laughs> but they make it sound like it's a multitude. You know, There's a multitude of people that, that are upset. People who have an agenda. They love to exaggerate. And that's what Haman's doing here. As I mentioned, the Jews scattered throughout these 127 provinces, numbered, most scholars believe, about 3 million people. And he wants, he's offering 20 million dollars for the right to annihilate all of them. And Ahasuerus, the king, says, okay, because he was much more concerned about dollars than he was about people. He, is, he will agree to decreasing the number of people in order to increase the amount of his bank accounts. We pick it up in verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hammedatha the Agagite, and the, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as seems good to you. Giving him his signet ring was like giving him all authority. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps and the governors who were over each province and to the officials and of all the people to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. And in the name of king Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring and the letters were sent by couriers in all the king's provinces to destroy destroy and to kill and to annihilate all the Jews both young and old little children and women in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month of Adar and to plunder their possessions the last part of verse 13 gives insight into how Haman is going to fund and raise these 20 million dollars he's going to he's going to take from the people that he's killing And that's exactly what Hitler did. That's how Hitler financed his war. He took from the Jewish people that he was destroying because throughout history, the Jewish people have always been prosperous. So this decree is put forth, this horrific decree. And we read in verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. Get ready to die, in other words. The couriers went out and hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. That was the capital. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Notice that last phrase. They sat down to drink. What a depiction! of the pride and the arrogance and the disregard for human life. They've just signed into decree that three million people are going to die, and it's like, okay, let's toast, let's have a beer, you know. How sad. This is the epitome of being callous and evil. Now we see in these two men. But I also want you to notice that last line. It says, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. What that means is this. All the citizens in Persia, when they heard about this decree, they were overwhelmed. They were grieved. They were like, no, we love these people. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're our coworkers. They're decent neighbors. They're good citizens. How can, how can we do this? And you know, may we, as Christians living here in North County, San Diego, may we live in such a way with the people that God has put into our sphere of influence that we come in contact with and work with and live by. May we live in such a way that if somehow, someday, a decree went forth like this, that they're going to lock up all the Christians. Or they're going to eradicate all us Christians. And some of you are thinking, that would never happen, Pastor Rob. I don't know. Things are getting kind of crazy, right? May we live in such a way that our neighbors, our co-workers, would yell, no, no way. We can't allow that to happen. We love these people. That's why it's so important that we follow our Lord's exhortation to us to be the salt of the earth, to be that flavor enhancing people in society, to be those who are a healing agent in society, be those who are are that preserving element so that if something like this ever did happen here in America, that the unbelievers around us wouldn't be going, good riddance, but they'd be yelling and protesting and saying, no way, that can't happen. I want us to continue into chapter 4, just three verses. This is going to be our last point, point. I want you to notice what happens next. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went as far as the front of the king's gate for no one might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes were signs of extreme mourning. And this is our third trait of the kind of person that God uses is that they are touched deeply by sin and injustice. Mordecai is before the gates. That would be like today going before the Capitol building and he is mourning out loud. He's tore his clothes. He's put on funeral apparel, if you would sackcloth and ashes he's making a spectacle of himself in one sense but he's i mean you know i want you to picture this this one man standing and he's weeping and mourning with a loud voice but then we read it wasn't just him and it wasn't just in shushan notice verse 3 and in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And there's a lesson for us in this, that sorrow often leads to an intensified seeking of God. Sorrow often leads to an intensified seeking of God. And for a lot of these people, they had grown comfortable Living there in Persia. Some of them had come to the point where they just had become very content, but now they are crying out to God like they haven't in a long, long time. And I want you to just think this is a heavy picture. Put yourself, let's put ourselves into the story. You just get word that all the Christians in Persia are going to be annihilated your family, your kids, your grandkids. Imagine that. 11 months. In 11 months, you have 11 months to think about this. As I mentioned last week, there's nowhere you can go because Persia, they control everything. You're stuck. Now, as you're thinking about that, this is where we're going to end our time together here today. And I want to say this. This is not the place that I wanted to end this Bible study. If this was a movie, this would be the cliffhanger. I mean, this is like that movie that you're watching that just has that abrupt end and you're like, no way, it can't end like that, you know? That's, that's how it ends. And you're thinking like, I got I to wait how long until the next one comes out and we find out what happens? If this was a television show, all of a sudden, across the screen, it would be like, to be continued. And you're thinking, okay, is, is it continued next week? Or do I got to wait all the way till next season to find out what happened? Remember how they used to do that with Jack Bauer all the time in 24? You know? <laughs> but I, I can say this. I really, really struggled with how to end this message. Because usually I like to end by giving a sense of hope, pointing to the hope we have in Jesus, pointing to, to the gospel. But that is not the sense that I got from the Lord as I was preparing this message of how He wanted me to end this. And I'll tell you, I wrestled with this all day, all day yesterday. So I was preparing in the morning, and then as the women's thing was going on, I hung out with my grandson yesterday, Josiah. And as I was having fun with him, in the front of my mind was, how am I going to end this? Lord, how am I going to end this? And I felt like God was wanting me to to end it here. And I found myself late last night wrestling. I didn't finish till this morning, till today, (laughs) because I was wrestling. I felt like I was saying, no, I want you to, I want to end on this moment. And as I was finishing up this message, I couldn't help but think about the number one issue facing our country right now. And that's the Supreme Court's upcoming decision on abortion. To unlegalize abortion here in America. And guys, that is a huge thing. A huge decision that hopefully they're going to make next month. And I will say I have been a little bit perplexed by the number of Christians who have pointed out, who have made the point to, to, to point out that, that this is not a clear victory because it's going to be left up, even if the Supreme Court does that, they unlegalize abortion in our country, that it's going to be left up to the states. And I realize that is true, but I, I wrote to some of these guys and said, I understand what you're saying, but, but hey, this is a step in the right direction that could lead, it could lead to having this unlegalized in liberal states like California. But as I was pondering this and sensing that God was just pulling me in this direction to, to leave us here, I found myself thinking about the over 600,000 babies that are aborted every year here in the United States. The over 50 million babies that are aborted every year all around the world. The 1.5 billion babies that have been aborted in the last 50 years. And I got to tell you, I began to weep. I was just heartbroken. But then I thought, I had this thought, I'm just being honest. I thought, you know, it's been a a while since I've wept over this issue, since I've wept over the unborn. And I'm very, very pro-life. I've always supported pro-life. Pro life agencies. I've always sought to give them a voice here in in our church. I've picketed at abortion clinics. But how often have I wept? Really, really wept. And the answer was not often enough. And, And I'm not trying, I want you to know, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone here. I hate that type of manipulation. In sermons. But it made me wonder, for me, I'm talking about me. Maybe this applies to you, maybe it doesn't. But it made me wonder, I, I was processing this all day yesterday in, in my heart, was, have I just gotten so used to the sin and the evil and the injustice around me that it doesn't move my heart Anymore. Have I just accepted that that th- this is just the way it is that evil is going to reign here on planet Earth until Jesus returns, so please Jesus, come quickly. Have I settled in that type of mindset, and I begin wrestling and just just having this conversation with the Lord is is your coming back? Is that the only answer or Can we do something? And the Lord spoke to me. He's like, yeah, you can do something, but this is where it starts. It starts with mourning. It starts with having your heart broken over what breaks my heart as well. And we're going to see in our study next week that prayer and fasting play a huge part in what happens next little spoiler alert the heart of this pagan king a very arrogant man is going to get turned and I thought knowing knowing the story I thought Lord is that possible to happen here in California here in the United States and the answer was yes but again it was it starts with mourning It starts with realizing, and hear me on this, that this is not a political issue. It is first and foremost a spiritual issue because Satan is a destroyer. And he loves that 1.5 billion babies have been killed. And he loves that a host, millions upon millions of young and even old men and women's lives have been wrecked because they've participated or supported abortion, an abortion. And I just want to say, I know that in, in a group like this, that that's some of your stories, and I just want to remind you, I want to remind you, if you've, if you've had an abortion or if you've encouraged somebody to have an, an abortion, and you've given your life to Jesus, and you've repented of that, I want you to know that that is forgiven, and it's not only forgiven by Jesus, but it's forgotten. I mean, it's it's out of his remembrance, so he doesn't look at you with a stain on your life because of that. He loves you, and he wants you to know that one day you're going to even see that baby in heaven. I believe that with all my heart. But I found myself as I was thinking about this yesterday, I'm thinking about how it, it, it's, it, it looks like it's going to happen, that this is going to be overturned in, in America, Roe versus Wade, and I thought, could this be overturned in the States as well? Could it be overturned in a place here like California? And I think the answer is this. That instead of protesting in front of Capitol buildings, I just wonder what it would be like if millions of Christians from all over America met in front of Capitol buildings and mourned and prayed. And fasted and prayed. Because we're told... In Second Chronicles seven fourteen, you know the verse. In fact, say it with me. It's on the screen. If my people, say it with me. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And you know, sometimes I I, I hear Christians that say, oh, we can't apply that verse because that was given to Israel at a specific time and specific moment in their history and we're taking it out of context. And and it is true. It did apply to Israel a certain time, but it still applies for today. God responds when we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. And so as I was just praying... (laughs) This is what the Lord told me. This is where I want you to leave him today. I thought, do you want us just to have a, a big time of mourning? And you can't do that. You can't manipulate that and force that. This is a personal thing for all of us. And this is where I want to leave you today. It's a place where you just, in your own heart, consider this. The millions of babies what's at stake once this gets overturned what does it mean for us living here in California the theme of the book of Esther we're going to get to this next week and, and, and for those of you if you're just visiting today I, I apologize if you're like guy this is really heavy I don't know if I want to come back next week it's a great ending or it's a great <laughs> next what happens to this story all right but the theme of it is this, for such a time as this. And that's what God put on my heart as we were getting into this book. That's why he put on my heart like, hey, I, I, want, I, had, I, I, didn't, I didn't plan any of these messages out. It's kind of week to week, but it was like, that was the thing, for such a time as this. And God has us all here, just like he had Esther in Persia and Mordecai in Persia. He has us in California us here in San Diego, for such a time as this. But what does that mean? What does that mean for us? That's what we need to be praying. Because we're a one. And God wants us And imagine if all of us here said, okay, I don't know what I can do, but Lord, I want to do what you're calling me to do. If all of us did that, imagine how amazing that would be. Let's pray together. Father, We come to you today with heavy hearts as we consider this horrendous sin in our nation. And Lord, I don't know if I'm just speaking for myself or for others here, but Lord, I just want to say, forgive me. For becoming, for maybe losing hope. Forgive me, Lord, for, for settling that this is just a problem that's never going to go away. Because, Lord, I know you're bigger than that. And God, I pray that we would mourn. That we would cry out to you to break our hearts with what breaks yours. Lord, have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives. And Lord, we believe that although we are in this battle, we know, Lord, that your word is true, that what the enemy has meant for evil. You can turn for good. Thank you that those babies are in heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you are moving and working. Lord, I pray for the Supreme Court leaders that they, you would give them the courage and resolve to follow through on their convictions. But God, we pray in our state, this very liberal state, that you would move. That you would work. That it would start, Lord, with your people, our hearts being broken and crying out to you.